0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. An up-and-coming artist was waiting for a train at Union Station when he was beaten by a security guard. How his life is changed two years later.
1: There's things that I can stay away from because it leads back to somehow emotion, and that's uh, painting. Because it seems like every time I try to paint, I just bust out in tears.
0: Then, a woman who was evicted at the beginning of the pandemic, before a state order stopping evictions took effect.
2: I am definitely homeless. I can't eat a home-cooked meal, I crave a shower, I, (laughs) I crave just laying down in a bed.
0: As the state order expires, more Coloradans may face evictions. We answer questions from Colorado Wonders about what resources are available. And a frontline healthcare worker in her own words. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. Colorado and the nation are grappling with police brutality against people of color. The death of Elijah McClain after a violent encounter with Aurora police is perhaps the state's most high-profile case. Another case is just now starting to make headlines. Rivero Stinnett of Denver was assaulted by a security guard at Union Station in April of 2018. The assault left Stinnett with a severe brain injury, which has affected, among other things, his speech, his vision, and his memory. Stinnett, an up-and-coming Denver artist, sat down with CPR's Andrew Dukakis along with his lawyer and talked about what he remembers of that night. A note, this interview includes descriptions of violence that may be disturbing.
3: Rivero Stinnett is a shy person to begin with, and his brain injury can make it harder to communicate. That night, back in 2018, he had attended a gala at a downtown art gallery. After, he went to Union Station to catch a light rail train home. He missed the first one, so he had to wait for the next to arrive.
1: I just um, sat down and put on my headphones, and I was just going to wait for the next train. There were security guards. You know, I didn't hear what they were saying or anything, but I took out my headphones, and they was like, hey, what are you doing? And I was like, I'm just waiting for the train. And they was like, um, well, you can't wait here. And I was like, "What? what do you mean I can't wait here? And then it turned into... Where am I going to go? Everything on the mall is closed, you know, and they've been having trouble on the mall. I'm not going to just walk up and down the mall until the train comes and just let me wait here.
3: But the guards persisted, so Stinnett got up and walked over to the bus terminal. This pattern continued, with Stinnett moving and the guards following, telling him he had to leave. At one point, Stinnett asked the guards why others were allowed to wait there.
1: There's people here. How come I can't just wait with them? You know, I'm not making any noise. I ain't even looking at nobody. And um, he was like, well, you can go wait in the bathroom where there's no cameras. And I was like, wait in the bathroom? And then I I was just like, whatever. I just wanted to end the conversation. If that's where I got to wait, then that's where I got to wait, basically. So I walked to the bathroom
3: the security guards followed him two waited outside while the other two went in and stinnett says yelled for everyone who was in the bathroom at the time to get out
1: and then as soon as i turned around i, I looked down and dude is putting on gloves with little studs on them and i'm like what are you doing with them and as soon as i said that he he punched me and, and i don't remember anything else after that
3: so one of the security guards put on a pair of gloves that were studded yeah, with metal
1: little flat studs
3: and punched you,
1: oh yeah, it must have hit me hard because I got a got scar here, scar on my nose, all this was busted up, my teeth were checked, and that's not even to say what I'm gonna just assume that I was down and he was still hitting me. That's what I'm just gonna assume because so he I was hit pretty several times. he didn't just hit me one time, and then I have all this damage. no, it was he had to have hit me more than once. I'm thinking my face was swollen, I had a big old. They said it was the size of uh, um, an egg. The size On your of forehead, you had a,
3: a bump the size of an egg. Yeah, I was beat up pretty bad. The security guards involved in the attack were subcontractors hired by RTD, the Regional Transportation District, to work at Union Station. There was a criminal case. The guard who beat Stinnett up, James Hunter, pleaded guilty and received a prison sentence. Two other guards also pleaded guilty and got probation. A fourth was a cooperating witness. Here's Hunter being interviewed by a prosecutor with the Denver District Attorney's Office about clearing the bathroom before the attack.
4: Were there other people in the bathroom when you and Mr. Stinnett went in the bathroom? Uh, There were a few people, you know. Taking a taking a piss, you know, he's in the restroom. Did they leave? Yes. Why did they leave? Uh, I told them to leave. Okay. Why? Uh, because Mr. Stinnett and I were going to fight in the bathroom. Okay.
3: Stinnett's lawyer, Kuseir Mohammedbai, has spent hours with the artist since the beating.
5: You know, it was just premeditated violence and racial profiling. There was no reason at all for them to even have spoken to Rivero, to approached him. He was doing nothing other than waiting for a train. He was just a black man in a public space that they didn't want him there.
3: And they tried to get him to an area where there were no cameras, right?
5: Right, they knew exactly what they were doing. This wasn't the first time they'd done something like this. And uh, Rivero suffered some horrific life altering injuries for no reason whatsoever.
3: And, Rivero, you are unarmed, uh, not accused of committing any crime. Do you think the guards involved targeted you because you're black?
1: Absolutely. It wasn't spoken forward, but there's no doubt in my mind. There was others waiting around. No one else had to leave. There was even a person sleeping right across the bench from me, and they didn't say anything until that person woke up and carried on or whatever. We're clearing the area, yay. But how come everyone doesn't have to leave then?
3: Rivero, before you were assaulted, uh, your career as an artist in Denver was really skyrocketing. Collectors, galleries, and fellow artists all praised your work. You were really ready to make a big splash in the Denver art world. How has that changed since your attack?
1: At the time, I was a student, and I was doing really well. I was one of the best students. Um, I was probably one of the most liked and most appreciated students. And Rivera
5: was being modest. Uh, Rivero was on a full ride scholarship from an art gallery, Redline. The owners and uh, managers of the gallery had taken a profound liking to Rivero's work, his style, the breadth of his abilities. He was being put through school to be groomed to become Redline Art Gallery's next in-house resident artist. Uh, Many, many highly credentialed artists and art critics have looked at his work and just are amazed by his vision, his ability to uh, use different mediums from sculpting, from clay work, to paperwork, to chalk, to watercolor, to graphic design. There was really nothing Rivero could not do.
3: Cousser, you have spent quite a bit of time with Rivero since the beating. How would you say the brain injury has affected him?
5: Brain injuries are tremendously complicated. There are days uh, that are good, and there are days that are not so good. But Rivero's uh, short-term memory has been compromised. According to his uh, neurologist, he has a permanent brain injury that is visible from scans he has dead tissue on parts of his brain he has sometimes impulse control his ability to handle light is compromised his ability to gate sound is compromised for an example we all can uh, hear white noise and most of us find that to be relaxing we even sleep with it but we're able to tune out those noises when Necessary. Rivero, unfortunately, has lost that ability at times, so background noises can be extremely painful for him. He doesn't have the ability to focus his eyes together anymore, and therefore, unfortunately, some of his photography, which was his best skill, he has turned in some work that is blurry that he sees is not blurry. So his ability to even do that has been compromised. He had substantial teeth and gum injuries as well. So unfortunately the host of injuries and permanent injuries goes on and on.
3: Rivero, you can't create art at the level you once did and your recovery has been slow both physically and emotionally has that forced you to come to accept that you may never regain your talents
1: no because i have friends that push me <laughs> i have friends that wouldn't let that happen i mean will i be as fast or as good or as precise it's something i have to work toward but it's not as easy i i'm just much slower at doing things, or I have to think about things more than once or twice in order to in order to get it right.
3: And, Rivero, are you still working as an artist and honing your craft, even though you're not in school right now?
1: I try, but there's things that I can stay away from because it leads back to somehow emotion, and that's a painting. Because it seems like every time I try to paint, I just bust out in tears. Or if I'm even making the sketch for the painting, it's just tears. It's all tears. And that's the one that I try to stay away from because for some reason that happens and I don't get it.
3: Where um, are the tears coming from? What thoughts? I don't know. I wonder why, why myself. Let's turn to the case for a second, Kusair. Three of the four guards pleaded guilty. One is in prison and two are on probation. What is your lawsuit seeking?
5: All right. This is a federal civil rights lawsuit. This is the government, uh, through its agents, inflicting substantial injuries upon the community. This is transit security safeguarding government property. This is no different than what a uh, law enforcement officer or a Department of Corrections guard might face. So it is a civil rights lawsuit against law enforcement.
3: Rivero, what will justice mean for you in this case?
5: Uh, Yeah, I just really,
1: yeah, just wanted to bring awareness to what's going on. Because people are acting, yeah, they can throw their fists up in there and make a few chants. But people need to get angry and do something. Because Things need to change.
3: This case happened before George Floyd's death at the hands of Minneapolis police. It didn't get a lot of media attention. When your lawsuit was filed, was it a rarity?
5: Unfortunately, based on our practice being civil rights attorneys here in Colorado, it is not. Uh, There are just countless incidents of government officials causing extreme violence on communities of color. We're just very fortunate that Rivero survived this and that while his ability to tell the story has been compromised, he is doing his best to raise awareness that police brutality exists in our streets to this day.
0: Kusair Mohammed Bai is a Denver attorney who represents Rivero Stenet. Stenet was assaulted by a security guard at Denver's Union Station in April of 2018. They spoke with CPR's Andrea Dukakis. We reached out to RTD about the case and they sent us a statement. Here's part of it. The Stenet case was an isolated event of criminal activity that does not align with RTD's core values, nor does it reflect our attitude, mission, policies, or practices. As horrible as this incident was, this is about individuals' bad behavior and those individuals are suffering the consequences.
3: CPR is committed to covering emerging stories and delving deeply into the details of what's happening now, telling the truth of the story without hype or compromise. This vital news coverage is made possible through community support. If you're already a CPR member, Thank you. Your support ensures impartial journalism, statewide coverage, and an informed public. If you're in a position to make a gift or to increase your giving, help keep CPR strong at CPR.org.
0: Denver's Mayor Michael Hancock announced new measures Wednesday to deal with a spike in COVID-19 cases.
6: I have informed the governor that for the time being, we're hitting the pause button on our public health order variance requests to the state. I've always said that when it comes to reopening, Denver was going to take a measured and responsible approach to those efforts. And the responsible thing to do right now is to slow down on reopening plans.
0: Some examples of variance requests on hold? Places like the Denver Zoo and Denver Botanic Garden allowing more attendees. Denver Public Health data shows the spike began in mid-June, though hospital capacity remains steady. The seven-day average for novel coronavirus cases is 69, up from an average of 54 cases two weeks ago. In addition to slowing reopening, the city will expand testing sites.
6: We have partnered with the Denver Public Health to set up seven community-based test days through the end of the month. We will continue our mobile testing efforts for those who cannot leave their homes. Now, you may have seen members of the mayor's office recently organizing community food deliveries coordinated uh, with testing, and we'll be doing more of that where we can identify a need.
0: Hancock said the city will try to keep its free testing site at the Pepsi Center open at least to the end of July. The mayor also said the Denver Department of Public Health and Environment will enforce the mandate to wear masks in places, including businesses, public transportation, and other public buildings.
6: I will also tell you that DDPHE will be aligning resources to devote more staff to compliance with the face covering efforts. They will also be proactively visiting businesses and other various venues where coverings are mandated. We will, we will be taking uh, enforcement actions where noncompliance is is prevalent.
0: Denver has about 8,000 confirmed COVID-19 cases. There are 38,000 cases in Colorado. Across the state, an unknown number of people have fallen behind on their rent during the COVID-19 pandemic. For a while, they were protected by an executive order suspending evictions. But that order has expired, and already landlords have filed hundreds of new removal cases with the courts. Some fear that could lead to a wave of people becoming homeless. We're going to take a closer look at evictions, from what's allowed to what resources are available. Let's start with CPR's public affairs reporter, Andrew Kenny, who brings us the story of a woman who's already lived through the reality of losing her home.
4: Tiffany Quintana has always taken pride that she's from Denver.
2: I do. (laughs) It's nice to be a Colorado native. I love it.
4: (laughs) I loved it. I
2: still love it. But things are just a little
4: different. Quintana was walking last month through a residential neighborhood on the city's north side, not far from the elementary school she attended and her childhood home.
2: I grew up about four blocks down. My grandma and my grandpa had owned a home that they built and added onto, to, and it's beautiful.
4: But her own home that day was a barely functional Chevy Suburban parked outside an apartment building.
2: So we have our oil. We have our clothes that we try to keep clean. We have about five pillows. We have a sleeping blanket. We have another.
4: It only took two months of the pandemic for Quintana to go from living in an apartment with her boyfriend to squeezing into this SUV. She had always put together a few different jobs to pay rent. Walmart, the 7-Eleven, a t-shirt factory. But she was already in trouble when the pandemic hit. She said she missed rent in February after cutting back work to care for a relative. Her landlord filed for eviction the week before the first coronavirus cases were confirmed in Colorado. Governor Jared Polis later ordered a freeze on evictions, but it didn't stop ones that were already in motion. And as the pandemic spread, Quintana's chance to recover disappeared.
2: Customer service is what I'm used to. And those
4: jobs were depleting by the
2: day and getting further and further away. And by the time I knew it, they were just gone.
4: She tried delivering for Uber Eats on her bicycle didn't work. She went back to Walmart and then spent two weeks sick in her apartment with what she thinks was COVID-19. When her stimulus check finally arrived, she offered half to the apartment complex, saving the rest for bills. By that point, she was several months behind.
2: She said, come on, Tiffany, let's be real. There's no way that you're going to be able to come up with this amount of money.
4: Instead, she said the woman called her higher-ups.
2: That's when they had to call the property management and by the next day they called me at eleven o'clock in the morning and I had two hours to move out.
4: By that point, evictions had ground to a halt throughout the state, but Quintana didn't know whether sheriff's deputies would show up to enforce the judge's order. So she and her boyfriend rushed to pack.
2: I handed over the keys, which I didn't know was probably a mistake because I probably wouldn't be in the situation right now. I would have I would have had a little bit more time.
4: Quintana had never been homeless before.
2: Well, we didn't know where to go because it was so quick.
4: And she soon realized the pandemic was making homelessness even more difficult as public buildings shut down. She felt helpless. She couldn't find anywhere to shower. The new emergency shelter for women in Denver only lets people shower if they stay overnight, something Quintana was afraid to do.
2: I actually begged (laughs) this rec center because I know that they have showers in there because of the pool and they said that they weren't allowed to do it, and I actually begged them to. I'm like, can you just please make one exception so that I can just take a shower and feel normal.
4: The state and federal governments raced to roll out resources, but they all seemed just out of reach. She thought she qualified for unemployment benefits, but the phone lines were always busy, and I watched as Quintana struggled with the confusing error message on the state website.
2: Now, please enter your username below. And we will send an email with the link to reset your password. So my username is now, it's saying invalid also.
4: As the weeks passed, she felt further and further from her old life, and she started thinking of herself as homeless.
2: I I am definitely homeless. I can't eat a home-cooked meal. I crave a home-cooked meal so bad. I crave a shower. I crave watching TV. I I crave just laying down in a bed.
4: Homelessness was one of Quintana's worst fears. She'd watched her late father go through it for years as he struggled with alcoholism, and she remembers being on the other side.
2: Going around looking for him, going from park to park, the areas that I knew that he hung out at, the bus stops, and just looking for him, I I can't imagine the things that people have had to go through, and now I'm going through it.
4: This continued until late June. Quintana separated from her boyfriend, then got back together. She slept in parks, in the SUV, a couple nights in the shelter at the National Western Center. Until, after two months, someone finally called from the Labor Department. Quintana learned that she could qualify for nearly $6,000 in unemployment benefits, for months of missed work. When we talked on the phone, she sounded relieved. And then she spotted the renter of the property where they were parked, coming out to talk to her boyfriend. She assumed it was time to move on again.
2: ...in his yard, and he came out right now, so I don't know what's going on with that, but... I don't know, we just might have to put the drive shaft back in again and just ride it slowly down the block.
4: It was the kind of constant ups and downs that had defined the last few weeks.
2: It's crazy. It's like you get a good feeling for a moment and then boom. (laughs) Right back down, like, okay, now what?
4: Days later, she learned that she had mail waiting for her at a relative's house. She hoped to find her first unemployment payment in the envelope.
2: Colorado Department of Labor and Employment. Division of Unemployment Insurance.
4: She realized instantly that it was only paperwork, no payment.
2: No car today. That's okay. That's okay. This is one.
4: As she and her boyfriend looked over the forms, their hopes grew stronger. One step closer. Yay! <laughs> Within days, the first payment really did arrive.
2: Sorry. <laughs> I, I shake when I get excited. When I get really <laughs> sad. When I... <laughs>
4: the couple rented a motel room and started looking for an apartment.
2: Love
4: you. I love you too. <sighs> this week, they finally moved into one. Quintana's still scared. Rent in Denver is perilously high, and so is the unemployment rate. Her unemployment benefits may start to ratchet down within weeks. But for now, Tiffany Quintana's found a foothold to stop her slide into homelessness. I'm Andrew Kenny, CPR News.
0: Colorado had an eviction ban because of the pandemic that expired in June, and there haven't been protections as strong as that one since. Now, housing advocates worry that countless Coloradans will lose their rental homes as unemployment benefits expire this month, and the job market remains weak. With evictions ramping up, listeners have been asking Colorado Wonders about what will happen next under the state's torque of protections. Angela Martell, a mom from Grand Junction, had no idea what would happen after she received an eviction notice from Mesa County Courts.
7: So I called the courts to find out what it meant because I've never been in this situation ever in my whole entire 35 years of life. So I called the court office and they advised me that... The judge had ordered me to have 48 hours to leave the premises. If you don't leave, then the sheriff's officer will come out with the landlord and wait until I move all my stuff out. It was, you become in survivor mode. You become mommy mode where I need to make sure my daughters are okay.
0: CPR's Andrew Kenny and Taylor Allen are here to explain how Colorado's evictions courts are grinding back into motion and what we might see over the next few weeks. Welcome to you both. Glad to be here. Glad to be here. Okay, let's start with something a bit more basic. What's happening with evictions? Are they allowed in Colorado, Andrew?
4: Yeah, they are. So evictions are now going full steam, They weren't before, but they are now. Courts are accepting the filings. Sheriff's deputies are carrying out the removals. People across Colorado can be evicted for failing to pay rent, whether it was before or during the pandemic. There is still some variety. Certain buildings are under federal rules, uh, under the CARES Act, and they can't do evictions for another week or so. But for the most part, yes, they're, they're back in motion now.
0: Taylor, what has Governor Polis done in terms of evictions protections?
8: Well, for a while, Polis banned evictions altogether, Uh, but now he's just given tenants a little more time to pay back their debt. Polis' last executive order was Sunday, and it just extended an existing order that said landlords have to give tenants a 30-day notice before beginning the eviction process instead of the standard 10-day notice that landlords had to do before the pandemic. There was a time when all evictions were banned in May, but that transitioned into only a ban for people experiencing financial hardship because of the pandemic in June. But that all has expired now. Um, A lot of housing advocates have pushed for more protections, but Polis said he had to consider landlords' needs too. Can landlords charge late fees
0: or increase rent?
4: Yes, they can do that again. Uh, Late fees were briefly banned under the evictions ban. You can now charge late fees again for, for rent that's not paid on time. And, of course, if a lease is coming, uh, if a lease is expiring, the landlord is free to change the rent however they like.
8: And, Taylor, what kind of evictions are already underway? Any non-payment of rent for any reason. Uh, There have been more than 800 cases filed since June 1st. That's below normal, but it's accelerating. A lot of these first evictions are for people who already owed rent when the pandemic started. Those cases have basically been unfrozen after being stuck in court. And starting this week, landlords have really been allowed to file for current non payment cases where people may have lost a job and missed payment in April, May, June. And it seems like there's nothing stopping these cases. Um, I know sheriff deputies in the counties of Denver, Summit, Arapahoe, Jefferson, and Adams have already begun serving. What should someone do if they're facing eviction?
4: Well, they only have a few options on the renter's side. The first thing would really be to find out where you are in the process. You know, talk to your landlord. Make sure, are they demanding rent? Have they posted the rent demand? And you can also um, call into the courts and see if an eviction case has been filed against you. The most important thing is that, like Taylor said earlier, landlords must post a 30-day notice within that period renters can repay in full and make the case go away. But once you pass that, once the case goes to court, renters have very, very little power to repay or to stop the eviction in any way.
8: Yeah, after that one period, it's all up to the courts. And once it gets to that point, it's pretty difficult to win that case. You know, pro bono attorneys are going to be in high demand since some experts expect hundreds of thousands of Coloradans you know, going to be at risk for eviction this year. so yeah, and also once that initial 30-day period expires, landlords are under no obligation to accept that rent, even if you have all of it by the court date. How are the
0: courts handling
8: evictions? Ultimately, that's up to individual courts. A lot of them are moving to handle these cases uh telephonically, virtually. Uh right now, some tenants have received information through email. If you do not show though or dial in in this case, you automatically lose your case. Andy, what kind of resources are available to tenants?
4: I should mention that the biggest option that's available that people, uh, advocates are encouraging landlords and tenants to make is to work out a plan to repay that rent. If you can get your landlord to sign on to an agreement where you're going to repay the rent over six or 12 months, that will, if they sign it, protect you from an eviction case. But beyond that, there is something called the COVID-19 Eviction Defense Project. That's a private volunteer organization with free legal help. Similar help is available through groups like Colorado Legal Services and the Colorado Poverty Law Project. And we've also published a written guide to evictions, including some of these uh, some more resources that you can find on our website, CPR. CPR.org.
8: CPR.org. What can landlords do, Taylor? Uh, generally, they don't want to evict. Uh, but so the main alternative is to negotiate a payment plan with their renters. Like we kind of said before, uh, landlords that have a mortgage tend to worry about if they're able to pay for a mortgage forbearance. So the biggest thing is really try to work out a repayment plan. So like you said before, they're not required to accept rent after the certain number of filings have been placed, but that payment plan can be an option. It could be an option. And what people should know is that, you know it works out for both people. Ultimately, if the landlord gets their money and someone gets to still have a place to live, everyone is happy. And what can the governor do?
4: Well, he did the earlier eviction ban purely on executive order on his power as governor. Obviously, he was facing some pushback from property owners' groups and others who said that, you know, if they were not able to collect rent for much longer, that it was going to really disrupt. So he could go back and try another eviction ban that seems unlikely. The legislature tried to take on this issue, but was not able to get enough votes uh, from Democrats to put this together. Meanwhile, advocates are also asking for at least some other tweaks that they would like to see where perhaps there could be ways to make it more clear to people facing eviction how the legal process is going to work. They want more resources available in Spanish and English, for example.
0: Thank you so much for joining us, Andy and Taylor. Thank you. Thank you. CPR's Taylor Allen and Andrew Kenney. You can find ongoing coverage of evictions and rent in this time of coronavirus at CPR.org. When we come back, a frontline healthcare worker in her own words, and Dr. Anthony Fauci weighs in at the Aspen Ideas Festival on the effort to come up with a vaccine and a frustrating reality posed by COVID-19. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
9: Obviously, you know, you've had a really long relationship with marijuana. It's something people know about you. Why do you like it?
5: Keeps me from killing people.
9: Oh, okay, That's a good reason. Yeah. (laughs) I'm Anne-Marie Awad, and this is Willie Nelson.
5: We need to
10: end the federal ban on cannabis.
9: On the season two premiere of the CPR podcast On Something, it's America's most beloved pot smoker. On Something is on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen.
0: Since the beginning of the pandemic, there's been a lot of recognition of healthcare workers. We're going to hear from these very healthcare workers in their own words in the coming days. CPR's Claire Cleveland spoke with Dr. Abigail Lara, a pulmonologist and intensive care unit physician at the University of Colorado Hospital. Many months ago, before COVID,
7: a middle-aged woman was my patient and she had a condition which unfortunately wasn't survivable. We asked the family to come in, and it was very apparent that they were both very upset. After about 15 minutes or so, the husband came to my side of the bed and was holding his wife's hand, and I did tell him that she's dying, and at that moment, he became very tearful. I put my hand on the shoulder, then turned and hugged me. I am a brown female physician. We have very different life stories, but in that moment, I needed to provide him support and he was appreciative of that. My name is Abigail Lara. I am a pulmonary critical care physician at the University of Colorado Hospital in Aurora, Colorado. You know, I've been a physician for gosh, 20 years now, and I still introduce myself as Abby Laura, I'm the ICU attending. I still have a little bit of difficulties of just introducing myself straightly as Dr. Laura. Um, I think that's probably a little bit of what my parents shared with me: meet people where they are, and don't take yourself too seriously. Hi. <laughs> was the first in my family to graduate college. I feel that I bear a responsibility as a Mexican American, as a Latinx female who has achieved truly the American dream, to role model the best medicine that I can, particularly during this time of COVID. So one gentleman that I'll refer to as Mr. T, the first letter of his last name is T. Um, he's a black man. He came in early during my um, first day in the surge ICU. Initially was very sick, did require incubation um, and placement, like the breathing machine or the mechanical ventilator. Went off service and about two weeks later, I came back on service. We were able to get him onto a speaking valve. Um, And he no longer needed dialysis. He no longer needed um, life support. After morning rounds, part of the plan was to transfer him out of the ICU to the floor. I was so excited because I had never met him. And I asked him if he remembered me. And he said no. But he started to cry. He just said, thank you. Thank you for saving my life. And I said, you're welcome. And I said, It's so nice to find me you. After four weeks in our ICU, uh, to be able to meet that personality, I think is very striking. My patients in the ICU are brown and they are black. First week that I was on in the COVID ICU, uh, as I was walking around the unit and I was looking at the names the names are familiar to me because they're also my family's names. Martinez, Fernandez, Garcia, the list goes on and on. It's been striking to me in a very primal, very emotional way. What I hope that people learn is how important their relationships are. Of course, with family, friends, but even those relationships that we have with people that are not always front and center. The non-verbals of acknowledging other people is really important. Everyone has a unique story that they bring with them. And I hope people do three things. Wear a mask, wash your hands, and smile at others.
0: You can read this and other stories about what it's like to be on the front lines of the coronavirus in Colorado at CPR.org. Dr. Anthony Fauci is the nation's top expert on infectious diseases. It's clear in media reports that he and President Trump don't readily agree on the severity of the pandemic. As that plays out on the national stage, Dr. Fauci recently spoke at the Aspen Ideas Festival in Colorado. It was held virtually this year due to the pandemic. CNN's senior medical correspondent Elizabeth Cohen asked him questions. We want to share an, exp- an excerpt of that now, focusing on the effort to come up with a vaccine to prevent COVID 19 and the challenges of contact tracing and why the virus is especially frustrating for doctors.
9: Let's talk about the vaccine. There are three companies that are going into phase three clinical trials this summer. How much hope do you have that these vaccines will work and they will work well to get this outbreak under control?
10: Well, as you know, With vaccinology, nothing is guaranteed because you're dealing with biologics, you're injecting innocent people, you have to wait to see what the dynamics of the outbreak is if you get a good signal that it works. So, with all those vicissitudes being considered, what I've seen in early data, in the animal data, and in the phase one data, which is primarily for safety, but you get some inkling as to whether or not you can induce the kind of immune response that you would predict would be protective. What I've seen thus far looks good. So with all the caveats that go with no guarantee, I still think that one can say that I'm cautiously optimistic that we will have one or maybe more candidates of vaccines that could be available and be effective by the end of the year, the beginning of 2021. What's different about all of this is that there is a Great risk in the uh, provision of resources. So if this were normal business as usual, no emergency, companies would not make investments in the next step until they were sure of the previous step. They wouldn't be manufacturing doses unless they knew the vaccine would work. What's happened now with major investments on the part of the federal government that when these products reach a certain point, phase two, early phase three, you're going to push the button and already start manufacturing, which means that if you prove that it's effective or not, but let's assume it is, and it's December or January, by that time, you will already have a lot of doses to distribute. In fact, several of the companies, and I I can't vouch for them, but they're saying it with confidence. Several of the companies are saying that by the beginning of 2020 into 2020, excuse me, 2021 and into 2021, they will have hundreds of millions of doses. And after a year or so, even as many as a billion doses. So if that's true and we'll take them on their word, then you and I and others could have a vaccine that we might be able to take in December or January or February.
9: You know, vaccines have different levels of efficacy. If you get two doses of measles vaccine, you are almost 100% protected. But, you know, as as you and I know, the flu vaccine, even on a well-matched year, is, you know, 40 to 60% protective against, you know, flu. Which do we think this is going to be? Is it going to be 100% we are going to protect against this, or it might be something less than that? And if so, how much less?
10: Well... As you probably know the answer to your own question, Elizabeth, we don't know the answer to that right now. You've gotta do the testing to find out. Uh, I doubt seriously that any vaccine will ever be 100% protected. The best we've ever done is measles, which is 97 to 98% effective. Um, Oh, that would be wonderful if we get there. I don't think we will. I would settle for a 70, 75% effective vaccine because that would bring you to that level of would be herd immunity level.
9: It's interesting, the three vaccines that are going to be in phase three trials this summer, they use technology that's never been used in a vaccine that's on the market. This will be the first time. Um, does that give you any uneasiness or? No, t-
10: not not really. I mean, I'm, Elizabeth, you know me for a long time. I'm uneasy about everything that we're not sure of. And that's the reason why we do that. I would say that I don't have a major concern about that because it is a, is a good technique. Um, it is easy to scale up. The responses we're getting in the animals and in the phase one look really good. So, I mean, obviously you always have a little bit concern because it hasn't been proven over decades, but I think we'll be okay. We're also doing some of the more classic ones.
9: Well, the Chinese are using a very classic one that's resulted in many vaccines on the market. Everyone said it would be slow, but they're in phase three. Right. Um, is it possible they could get a vaccine? The Chinese could get- get a vaccine before
10: we do? Oh, God bless them. I hope they do. As a matter of fact, I hope everybody that's trying to get a vaccine gets it quickly and effectively and safely. Absolutely. This isn't a competition to win a game. This is this is a lot of different groups from different countries trying to develop a vaccine that would be safe and effective. I mean, I often get that question, like, are you concerned that somebody's going to get it before you? Goodness, I hope everybody gets it. I don't really care what order they get it in
9: you have devoted your life to fighting these outbreaks, your work with HIV, your work with H1N1, that all speaks for itself. And I've wondered how, how have you felt watching our country um, get into the situation that it's in right now?
10: Well, you know, it, it's, it's difficult uh, to see that. Um, I think what, what people don't understand that there are things that we could have done better and there are things that are beyond our control that have made it much more difficult for us. Um, You know, we are a very big country. We have great heterogeneity. Some countries that can do things in a unidimensional way, it's very difficult to do that here. We have a culture that isn't necessarily matched to many of the other countries. You know, the federalism, the states need to do things the way they want to do it. So there's the tension often between direction from the central to the implementation at the state level. You know, that's not an excuse, but there are a lot of things that make how we respond different than how other countries respond. There are a lot of things that we're really very happy with, very excited about, very proud of, and there are certainly things we could have done better. I mean, anybody who denies that is not looking at what's actually going on.
9: You know, this is so, contact tracing is such an important pillar of getting rid of an outbreak or getting an outbreak under control. I've spoken to many, many people who've been diagnosed with COVID. Not one of them was contacted for contact tracing. How do you think we're doing with contact tracing?
10: I don't think we're doing very well for a number of reasons, not all of which is the fault of the system, in that if you go into the community and call up and say, how's the contact tracing going? The dots are not connected because a lot of it is done by phone. You make a contact, 50% of the people, because you're coming from an authority, don't even want to talk to you. Uh, if you're in an area where there are a lot of brown people, people who are Latinx at the border. They're concerned if, they give you, if you give them confidential information, it's gonna work against them. And then there are those who they'll give you the contact, but you don't exactly isolate them. They get lost in, in the shuffle. That's very, very difficult situation. That we've gotta do better on. But what's even more confounding is that when you have a community-based outbreak, like's going on right now in several states, Florida, California, Texas, Arizona, et cetera, what you're seeing is community-based spread where 20 to 40% of the people who are infected don't have any symptoms. So the standard classic paradigm of identification, isolation, contact tracing doesn't work no matter how good you are because you don't know who you're tracing They're out there, they don't even know that they're infected. So one of the things that we are considering doing is completely blanketing these communities with tests to get a feel for what the penetrance is in the community of infection. You can do that by a number of ways. You can do pooled testing of large numbers of people together in one shot. You can get community people to get boots on the ground and to go out there and look for the people instead of getting on a phone and doing so-called contact tracing by phone.
9: So maybe going out there and doing contact tracing in person is a better exactly, idea. Exactly, exactly. Can we get this outbreak under control without good contact tracing? I mean, is it, is it going to be possible, or how important is this?
10: I, I think contact tracing is one element of a multifaceted response to control. It isn't the only one, but it's an important one.
9: Tony, do you ever run into people who say to you, You know, I don't know what all this mask stuff is about. I don't know what all this social distancing stuff is about. I'm fine. My family's fine. I'm going to go back out there. Oh, absolutely.
10: You know, it's understandable. Young people, uh, and and I I guess I'll say it again. I've said it so many times, is that in all of the years that I've been chasing viruses, I've never seen a situation that could lead to such confusion. Of course, with the same pathogen, you have 20 to 40 percent of the people don't even know they're infected. Then you get another proportion that they know they're infected because they have mild symptoms. Then another group that have moderately severe symptoms, they stay home for a week or two or more and don't feel well for another month. Others require hospitalization. Of those, some require oxygen. Of those, some require intubation. Others require ventilation and some die. So when you have a young person who has little chance, not zero because young people are getting into trouble too, but have little chance of getting seriously involved, they're saying, what's all the big deal about? I mean, people are getting infected. My friends, I'm in my 20s or whatever, I'm not gonna be getting infected. So they do things to propagate the, 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 the pandemic in, a, in an innocent, understandable, but un- regrettable way. And that is they don't realize that while they're getting infected, it is likely they're gonna infect someone else who will infect someone else who ultimately will infect a vulnerable person, and then you have hospitalizations and deaths. So, like it or not, by getting infected yourself, you're not in a vacuum. You're part of the propagation of the dynamics of a pandemic. So you have your own individual responsibility to protect yourself, but you really do have a societal responsibility to be not part of the problem, but to be part of the solution
9: the extent to which people are infected but are either asymptomatic or so mildly symptomatic that they don't even realize they have COVID, the extent to which that is happening, is that, has that been a surprise to you over the past few months? Is this unusual? Oh oh yeah,
10: it's very unusual to have a disease that kills a reasonably relatively high percentage of the vulnerables, the elderly with underlying conditions, even young people with underlying conditions, that same microbe does absolutely nothing to such a high percentage of people. I I don't know any precedent to that. Usually a microbe that's capable of killing you at least makes most of the people sick. That's not the case here. That's very confounding.
0: That's Dr. Anthony Fauci, director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. He spoke with CNN's senior medical correspondent Elizabeth Cohen at the Aspen Ideas Festival. That audio, courtesy of the Aspen Institute, will post a link to the entire conversation later today at CPR.org. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Avery Lill. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Thank you.